Hell is filled with people who are surprised they are there. Heaven is also filled with people who are surprised they are there. What do you think of that? Any pushback? There will be many in hell who say, everything about me should have gotten me into heaven. And I wager that every person in heaven will say, everything about me should have landed me in hell. That sums up pretty much all of Jesus' earthly ministry, especially in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. And starting today in John 3, we read a succession of individuals who encounter Jesus, and he talks to them. And we see that Jesus confronts people who are impressed with themselves. And Jesus comforts people who know they have failed and who know they are helpless. And to both kinds of people, he tells them, there is life only in me. That is humbling for the puffed up and that is hopeful for the downtrodden. Today, our passage's main concern is entrance into the kingdom of God. And we can put it in a simpler way. In today's passage, Jesus begins to answer the basic, vital question. How do you get into heaven? How do you get into heaven? And the answer comes within a conversation between Jesus and a man who thought he was automatically going to heaven. So if you're not there yet, turn with me to John chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 to 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirits is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. And this passage of God's word corrects our thinking. You and I are hardwired, hardwired to compare ourselves to other people, hardwired to gain somebody's approval, at least try to. And we might succeed, we might fail in, what, in this venture of gaining approval, comparing ourselves to other people. We might succeed, we might fail. But if this is how we are wired, this is how we operate, we've just missed the point. Jesus clarifies to Nicodemus in John 3. He tells him, worldly influence, worldly intellect, Worldly success. Nicodemus, they offer you no advantage in the kingdom of God. If we were to sum up what Jesus tells Nicodemus, he tells him this. If anyone is to enter the kingdom of God, the spirit must change them and the son must save them. The spirit must change them and the son must save them. You can picture these as two headlines that will go throughout our time. The Spirit must change you and the Son must save you. Now, just a little behind-the-scenes work before we dive in. I like to do this every now and then just because I don't want to take it for granted. Why do we do what we do every week? Each week, we have the goal to open up the Bible and expose what's in the passage, expose what's in the biblical text. And by that, I mean each week when we open up the Bible, we want to expose the Bible's original meaning and intent We want to take the Bible at face value. Why? Because we believe that behind every word of Scripture is one author, that is God himself. And therefore, if that is the case, then the original meaning and intention of each word of Scripture remains relevant to you and me. The Bible calls it living and active. So, every week, we open the Bible and expose what's there. And I use my pronoun carefully. I'm saying we do this. Now, you might be questioning, Steve, you're the only guy who talks in here. At least most of the time. I hear some voices sometimes. Yes, that's true. But as to remind you, listening is not a passive action. It is an active one. And so some practical actions for how to listen well if we together open the word and expose what's there is to have the Bible open. That might be a good place to start, even if it's on your phone. I don't care. And interact with the passage. Think, engage, and be ready to respond when you leave this place. And be ready to remember what you hear when you leave this place. All right, behind the scenes done. Let's dive in. First headline of John 3, 1 to 15, is the spirit must change you. Now, John doesn't just straight up tell us this headline. He more shows us this headline. And he shows us this in a story. So we have some work to do. He builds up to this headline, the spirit must change you. Now, just a running start of where we left off in the gospel of John. We left off at the end of chapter 2. You read the reread those last three verses of chapter 2, 23, 24, and 25. And there we see people believe in Jesus, but people believe in Jesus because they see signs from him. They see him do fancy stuff. 
And Jesus can see through these people and he sees their faith is shallow. He sees that they will eventually fade away. And I don't think it's a coincidence that right after that, John tells us about Nicodemus. Maybe one case study of the kinds of people that were in Jerusalem in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And so at the beginning of John 3, it's like the Apostle John does a profile sketch of Nicodemus. Even just a quick one. And we can learn a lot about him. From what we see about Nicodemus, we can commend him and we can convict him. We can commend Nicodemus. Nicodemus was surely a faithful Jewish man. He definitely would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast where Jesus was. That's where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And in a couple of verses, we get a hint that Nicodemus is an older man. He tells Jesus, how can, a, how can an older man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And so it's likely that Nicodemus came to Jerusalem for Passover all of his life. I bet he came to Passover as a kid with his mom and his dad. Came to Jerusalem. I bet he came to Passover in Jerusalem when he was studying to be a rabbi all of with his fellow students. I bet Nicodemus came to Passover as he was starting to learn more and more and becoming a successful rabbi. And now at this point, he's advanced in his years. Nicodemus now is coming to Passover in Jerusalem as one of the most important men in the city. And for all of his years of coming to Jerusalem for Passover, Nicodemus never saw one like this. Never. Nicodemus witnessed a young teacher take a stand for God's temple that was being abused. He witnessed Jesus take a stand for the temple when nobody else would. And then Nicodemus witnessed that same young teacher perform various signs and miracles throughout the Passover week. And even for an old man. An old man with lots of life and lots of learning under his belt. Nicodemus is interested. Even for a man who's called a Pharisee. A proud group. A Pharisee, an influential group. A Pharisee, a group that John the Baptist calls a brood of vipers. A Pharisee, a group that Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. Bright on the outside. Full of death on the inside. A group like the Pharisees that despises Jesus. Nicodemus belongs to that group. And still, he just can't resist. He's got to go see Jesus. And we see he's a ruler of the Jews. That would mean he's likely a part of what's known, what was known as the Sanhedrin. This great council of the Jews. So in other words, Nicodemus belongs to the elite of society. Nicodemus has a Harvard, a Harvard University degree. And still, still, Nicodemus can't resist coming to this young, uneducated teacher from the lowest part of society. And so for that, we can commend Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus despite what Nicodemus' friends would say. So I wonder for you, do you have people in your life who think you are weird or crazy? Now, hold on, I didn't finish my sentence because they might think of that for a, 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 a wrong way. 
Do you have people in your life who think you are weird and crazy because you go to church? Uh, yeah. And you know what? I commend you for being here. Because you know what? Je they thought the same thing about Jesus. You are in good company. But another question for you. Are you timid, a little hesitant, to commit to Jesus because of what your friends would say? Because you would be one of those Jesus people. You'd be one of those born-agains. You'd be a, a goody two-shoes. I don't know if people say that anymore. <laughs> if that is you, friend, we at least commend you for being here. If you are timid, I would say at least be like Nicodemus. Come and see Jesus because the real Jesus, like Nicodemus found out, is irresistible and non-ignorable. So, but for as much as we can commend Nicodemus, Nicodemus is like my wife's favorite dessert, one of her favorite desserts. Uh, she calls it pineapple fluff. Uh, if for the layperson, this is Dole Whip that they sell at Disney World. It's just frozen pineapple, milk, and sugar. If we're feeling indulgent, it's vanilla ice cream and frozen pineapple. And it's all blended together. So what Cable will do is she'll blend up this concoction in our Vitamix. I was going to do a free plug for Justin Ross. He works for Vitamix, but he's not here. Uh, and she'll blend it up, and then she'll bring me a spoonful, and she'll, she said, taste this. I get a second to let it marinate in my mouth like a, like a fine wine. And then she'll ask me, okay, what's missing? What's missing? We can commend Nicodemus for coming to Jesus. But we kind of taste what he's seeing and then we, we taste something's missing here. Something's missing. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, but did you notice? He comes to Jesus when? At night. Now, not to rush to conclusion, because some claim that Nicodemus did this so he could have a longer conversation with Jesus. You know as well as I do, you see Jesus throughout the Gospels. Jesus is a busy guy. A lot of people have his ear during the day. So maybe Nicodemus knows this and he says, all right, I'll go talk to him at night when no one's bothering him. But given how John talks about night and darkness throughout his book, and given just Nicodemus' misunderstanding, he seems to be in the dark himself spiritually, I think Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night likely means that he wants to come to Jesus in secret. And in verse 2, we can commend Nicodemus. Verse 2, Nicodemus approaches Jesus in respect. I mean, think about it. He's a leading teacher in Israel. And Jesus is an unknown, young, uneducated teacher from Nazareth. And still, Nicodemus calls him rabbi which would have been very respectful. And even more than that, Nicodemus says Jesus is sent from God. This isn't a throwaway comment. This comment would have placed Jesus on par with guys like Moses and Daniel. This is Nicodemus saying that. This is a huge step. But you know what? You just let it sit in your mouth for a minute. And you realize something is missing here. Because we got to tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Jesus is worth more than just your respect. Jesus is worth and deserves your worship, not just your respect. 
but even Nicodemus's respect itself. We see it, it you've got to look closely. It's timid. Because Nicodemus doesn't come out and say that he thinks Jesus is a teacher sent from God. What does he say? He says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. Not, not I know. We know. Nicodemus does not clearly deal with Jesus for himself in a personal way. Nicodemus hides behind the word we. I don't, this is a sharp question, but do you do that? Do you hide behind a group? Because as, for as much as we commend you for being here, not just for people who don't believe in Jesus, but for people who do, it is so easy to hide behind a group. Come in and come out. It's easy to come here and never deal personally for yourself with Jesus. Don't do what Nicodemus did. So now we're getting closer to our takeaway. The, the profile sketch is pretty much done. And it comes when Jesus redirects Nicodemus to what's truly important in verse 3. And Jesus can read people. He can see right to their hearts. He can see that behind Nicodemus's timidly respectful greeting is a question. It's like Nicodemus is asking Jesus when he comes up to him. It's like he's asking in a backward way, all right, Jesus, what's the deal? Are you really the Messiah? And like with any person, Jesus sees right through Nicodemus' heart. And it's like Jesus responds to Nicodemus saying this, all right, Nicodemus, what if I am? What if I am the Messiah? Do you think that you're automatically in my kingdom? Do you think you're automatically in? Because Nicodemus, let me tell you something. The only ones who are in my kingdom are those who have been born again. Now, we're going to explain this more in just a moment, but if we just think about the concept of being reborn, we can sense what Jesus means. It means that we must be so bad that we need a completely fresh, clean start. It must mean we need an entire new operating system. It must mean we need a new nature, a new heart. So, we must be born again. Now, remember, this comes in the context of a story, of a conversation. Remember who Jesus is telling this to. He's telling this to Nicodemus. And let me tell you about something, something about Nicodemus. It's a bold statement. Nicodemus is a better person than you. Nicodemus is a better person than you. And if your first reaction is to say, like, uh, nah, probably not then you, you kind of just proved my point. <laughs> People wanted to be like Nicodemus. This guy probably memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And yet, Nicodemus belonged to a group that had a certain mindset. And you could see that mindset in so many places. One place you could see it is in Luke chapter 7. So if you want, you can keep your thumb in John 3 and flip back to Luke 7. You could see the mindset that the Pharisees had. And remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So Luke chapter 7, toward the end of it, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. 
And he's telling everybody, I know there's been doubts about John the Baptist, but John the Baptist's ministry is legitimate. He prepared the way for me, just as he was supposed to do, just as he was called to do. And when people hear Jesus talk about John the Baptist and confirm his ministry, everybody agrees. As Luke says, in in verse 28 and 29, because everybody went out and got baptized by John the Baptist. Even the tax collectors did. John the Baptist's baptism, it says, was a baptism of repentance. So everybody went out and got baptized by John the Baptist because they recognized something about themselves. They recognized, I need cleansing. I have not lived the way I'm supposed to live. I need a fresh start. That's why they get baptized by John the Baptist. But then notice how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' words about John the Baptist. It's a, it's a different response in verse 30, Luke 7. Pharisees don't like what Jesus says. They reject it. It's because the Pharisees have this mindset. Cleansing? Cleansing? I don't need cleansing. I'm fine just the way that I am. And that's really the two mindsets we can have. I'm a mess or I'm just fine. Nicodemus comes from a group with a mindset of, I'm just fine. I'm, with the mindset of, I'm better than just fine. I'm a good person. And th- so this, you can imagine how Nicodemus is hearing the words of Jesus. This concept of cleansing and rebirth, this concept doesn't register with people who are convinced that they are just fine. It doesn't register. It sounds like a foreign language. So and compare this with Paul's story that we read earlier in Philippians 3. Paul belonged to the Pharisees. He had this mindset that he was just fine. And he tells us, I threw that garbage away. I threw that garbage away. Because being born again is more than just being cleansed of your sin. It's being cleansed of your supposed righteousness. It's being cleansed of what you hold up to God and tell God, see, God, look it. This is why I'm good. It's being cleansed of that. Nicodemus hadn't done that. And that's why this talk of new birth just doesn't land on Nicodemus. He thinks Jesus talks about a literal second birth. And yet Jesus is so gracious. We look at verses 5 to 8 of John 3. He explains what he means. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Take a breath before you scramble to figure out what that means. Let the context help you. Jesus tells Nicodemus later, Nicodemus, you you should understand this. You're a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. You should know this. You should know what I'm talking about. This shouldn't surprise you. So that must mean that what Jesus is saying here is in line with the Old Testament. That must mean that the Old Testament anticipates the need to be born of the water and spirit. That's why we read Ezekiel 36 earlier. It's a key place where the Old Testament promises that. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
to be born of water and the Spirit is to, refer, is to refer to two elements of the same event. The event that many people call regeneration. was a fancy word for rebirth. This is when the Spirit of God washes us of our desire to sin and gives us the desire and power to follow God. This is when we have a new life beating within us. Now hear me out. This is not when you have a new perfection. But this is when you have a new direction. Jesus is explaining this. He explains more in verse 6. He says, Every person that must be born again if they are to enter the kingdom. He says, Our natural human fleshly birth makes us belong to the human family. That means we inherit that disease we were talking about with the kids earlier. The disease of sin. The human condition that turns ourselves into gods instead of worshiping the one true God. And because of this human condition, Jesus says no one is by nature born into God's family. We must be born again to come into God's family. And this is why Jesus came. We said this a few weeks ago when we were in John 1. One pastor put it like this, that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. And Jesus wraps up his explanation to Nicodemus by using the analogy of the wind. In fact, wind and spirit are the same words in Hebrew. He tells Nicodemus that just because he can't see where the new birth comes from doesn't mean it's fake. Just because he can't understand it entirely doesn't mean it's not real. Jesus tells Nicodemus Hey, you might not believe this, but you won't be able to deny when the Spirit changes a person. You won't be able to deny it. This is takeaway number one. You must be born again. The headline. Another way to put it, the Spirit must change you. So before we move on to headline number two, just a few questions for you. Three questions for you. Very direct questions. First, Are you born again? Are you born again? Because the church is filled with people who are just like Nicodemus. The church is filled with people who assume I'm just fine. The church is filled with people who like a little religion who like a little morals, who like a little advice, not people who, who believe and know they need a complete change. The church is filled with people like Nicodemus, people who respect Jesus, people who view Jesus like a part-time consultant, not people who embrace Jesus for themselves. So are you born again? And my friend, you and me can be really good at avoiding this question. And because one way we avoid this question is by looking at other people. Keeping our eyes on other people and not keeping our eyes on ourselves. We say things like this. You know what the problem is these days? You know what the problem is with the world? It's those snowflake Democrats. That's the problem with this world. 
It's those backward Republicans. That's the problem with our country. It's the kids these days. That's the problem. You see, you and I, we gripe about the world to avoid the question about ourselves. G.K. Chesterton wrote this in the London Times. You might have heard this story before. He's an old British guy. The London Times posed the question to its readers. Simply, all right, people, what's wrong with the world today? You know what G.K. Chesterton wrote back? He said, dear sir, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Are you born again? There are several ways you can tell. From this passage here, it's that you know you need cleansing. That you are not just fine. That you need a new heart, a fresh start. And you come to Jesus and Jesus alone for that. And you want to know more signs that you are born again? I would commend reading the book of 1 John this afternoon. John expands on it more. Question number two will be shorter. Do you live like you are born again? Do you live like you are born again? Much of the Christian life is living in line with who we already are. I think I say that a lot, but it's worth saying it again. The Christian life is living in line with who I already am. Can we say that together? Living in line with who I already am. Maybe you'll get it down by this afternoon. Christian, you are born again. You are made new. You have a new heart, a new life in you. And so it's our prayer that God would help us to live in line with the new reality. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know the power that is at work within them. So we pray, Lord, I know you have changed me. I want to know that more. I want to experience it. Question number three. Are you born again? Do you live like you're born again? Question three. Do you know that you can be born again? Do you know that? Thinking about the person who is fed up with themselves. Think about the person who's been left out, hung to dry. Think about the person who's fed up with life. Think about the person who battles emptiness. Think about the person who's like Nicodemus. Because you know what? We can convict Nicodemus of a lot of stuff. But I bet Nicodemus came to Jesus at least in part. Because Nicodemus had a sneaking suspicion. I'm not enough. If that is you, my friend, you can be cleansed. You can have new life. I think of the old hymn. It's one of my favorites. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And my favorite verse from it says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Don't delay, my friend. All you need to bring to Jesus is your need. That's it. 
So we return to this story. Two headlines, right? The Spirit must change you. Secondly, the Son must save you. The second headline will be shorter, I promise. The fir- All right, so again, we have some work to do because we're coming into verse 9. John doesn't tell us this headline. He just shows us it. Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus responds, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not have understanding? Again, Jesus tells Nicodemus he should have known what he was talking about. The Old Testament has built up to the expectation that people need a new heart. And yet this reminds us that just because you have a title doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. We experience that at work, I bet. Experience that in politics all the time. Think about my high school physics teacher. One, we were all struggling, and one day she let it slip. Oh, I, I never took physics in college. Boy, did it show. So, three cheers for public school. But in all seriousness, we can't take this for granted. We want to raise up people who are clear on the truth about how God saves us. And people who bear the fruit of being saved by God. Because you know what? Among those people are going to be our future leaders and pastors. And so, Nicodemus, he's got a title, doesn't know what he's talking about. So verses 11 to 15, Jesus tells Nicodemus who he is and what he's come to do. Tells Nicodemus who he is and what he's come to do. In verse 11, Jesus kind of imitates what Nicodemus did in verse 2. There in verse 2, Nicodemus said, hey, we know some things about you, Jesus. Here it's like Jesus says, well, we know one or two things ourselves as well. And he tells Nicodemus, look, Nick, this isn't a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of you needing to learn more. It's not a matter of you needing to see more. It's a matter of you needing to get over yourself and believe. Believe what all these signs you're seeing are telling you. That I'm more than just a rabbi. That I am the son of God who has come to give life to sinners. But here's the thing, Nicodemus. Jesus goes on in verse 12. Nicodemus, we can't even get beyond the new birth discussion. If I can't even talk to you about how you get into the kingdom while you're still on earth then how do you expect me and how do you expect to understand the details of the kingdom in heaven? Jesus explains to Nicodemus why he is credible to talk about this. He explains to Nicodemus that he alone is qualified to talk about heavenly things. And Jesus alludes to another verse from the Old Testament. He alludes to Proverbs 30, verse 4, which says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. It's like Jesus answers this question. And he tells Nicodemus, hey, it's not just that I managed to get up to heaven one day, have lived to tell the tale, and here I am. No, Nicodemus, you don't get it. I'm from heaven. I am the son of God. This is who I am. You should listen to me. You should trust me. So he explains who he is, and he explains what he left heaven to come to do. As he closes this section, he has come from heaven to give eternal life to those who face eternal death. 
So verse 15, Jesus references another part of the Old Testament. Israelites are in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21. Like in a lot of the places in Numbers, they're grumbling and complaining yet again. And so God sends a plague to judge their sin. He sends snakes. I know I can't imagine this either. And yet in his grace, God graciously provides new life. He tells the Israelites to raise a serpent on a pole. Hence the ambulance logo, if you see it. And it is a serpent of all things. A serpent. A serpent is what led them into sin in the first place. You remember that. It represented the curse of sin. And now this serpent is crushed on a pole. Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, God did this before and he's doing it again. I am God's gracious provision for new life. I will be lifted up. I will take the judgment that your sin deserves. I will bear the curse. I will crush the serpent. And in so doing, I will give new life. And whoever looks to me, whoever believes in me, won't just receive physical life. They will receive eternal life. I love how an old pastor, J.C. Ryle, reflects on verses 14 to 15. All right, so imagine you're in the desert with the Israelites. I've never walked through a desert before, so it's tough for me to imagine. But imagine you've been there for days, for years, and you haven't seen water in weeks. And now you're traveling in the wilderness, and now you see on the horizon, there's this horde of snakes coming toward you. And you left Egypt years ago. You thought you left the plagues behind in Egypt. But this time, the plague's not coming for the Egyptians. The plague's coming for you. And soon the snakes overtake you. And you feel the fangs pierce your leg. The venom seep into your skin. Where are you going to look? You say, oh, I know. I'll look to Moses. He'll know what to do. He can't help you. Oh, I know. I'll look to Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother. He's the smart one anyway. He'll know what to do. He can't help you either. Oh, I know. I'll try to make it to the tabernacle. This seems like a safe place. That'll help me. Still nothing. J.C. Ryle says this. Looking to anything but the brazen serpent, the bitten Israelite would not have been cured. Just so, looking to anything but Christ crucified, however holy the object might be, the sinner cannot be saved. So my friend, where will you look? Where will you look? Where will you look to address the poison that is within you? To address the curse that you face? the judgment you're under. Look nowhere but Jesus, the one who was lifted up, the one who took your place and mine. And my friend, if you have not decisively done this, today is the day. There is new life available for you. This is why uh, Ephesians 2.5 says that we were made alive 
That's like headline one. The spirit must change you. We were made alive in Christ. Headline two. The son must save you. Made alive in Christ. The new life comes only through Jesus' death. My Christian brother and sister, this still applies to you. Continue. Keep on looking to Jesus alone. Because if we stop looking to Jesus, we'll start to rely on ourselves. That's not where life is. Life is in Jesus alone. Our new life in Christ does not just begin with Christ and, and his cross. Our new life in Christ continues with Christ and his cross. Galatians 2.20, you probably know it. What does Paul say? The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we keep the one who was lifted up for us in front of us every single day. This is the life we live. Friends, we'll close on an encouraging note. There's hope for Nicodemus, there's hope for you and me. Because we also are timid, uncertain, hesitant people, just like Nicodemus. We are biased about ourselves, self-righteous, just like Nicodemus. But let's at least start like Nicodemus and come to Jesus. As Jesus proves what's true about him here, that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not stamp out. Jesus took a cowardly Pharisee with not even an ember of faith, and by the end of John, Nicodemus's ember will turn into a flame. John 19, Nicodemus will publicly side with Jesus. He'll take care of Jesus' body after Jesus is crucified. And maybe it's because Nicodemus remembers what Jesus told him. That he took care of Jesus' body because Nicodemus knew that Jesus gave up his body for him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. There is nothing about us, nothing in our hands we bring, simply To your cross we cling. We thank you for your grace that saved us from beginning to end. That your spirit caused your word to come alive in us. Opened our eyes to show us our need. And then drove us to Jesus. And Lord may we never leave. Help us. Thank you Lord. In your name we pray. If you don't have uh, elements for the Lord's Supper, you'll find them in the back of the room. It's one container with uh, the cup and the bread. And there are so many ways to think about this meal. And it's ironic that we call it a meal because it's such a small amount, but there's symbols behind this. A symbol of fullness. That Jesus did not just pay some, that Jesus paid all. A symbol today is, right, partaking of this meal 
we preach to the world, to ourselves. We profess our faith, not in us and that we are just fine, but that we are a mess and come to Jesus alone for it. The Bible warns us not to partake of this meal in an unworthy manner. This is not to show off about ourselves to say we are part of some exclusive club. This is to say this meal is only for those who are sinners and who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone for that sin. Because we take that so seriously, the preciousness of the body of Christ, we say that you should proclaim your trust and faith in Jesus before taking this meal. And we say you should proclaim that trust and faith in Jesus the way he tells us to proclaim it, by being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. My friend, this is not necessary to be saved, but it is necessary to obey the Lord. So if you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus, this is the day you talk to somebody about it. It's the day you talk to me about it. You know, maybe I'm intimidating. I hope I'm not. But this is a day that we're like Nicodemus, that we get over ourselves and we come. And so for those of us who are baptized believers in Jesus, we read these instructions for this meal from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we do each week, we'll read together the words that are printed in uh, uh, red and I'll read the words that are printed in white. 